Welcome to the Future of Protein podcast. I'm Ryan Katsrozine from the University of Ottawa, and this podcast is a recording from the Future of Protein conference we held here on campus in October 2018. Each of the episodes in this podcast series tackles the future of protein from a different sustainability challenge area. So in this episode, we look at innovation and investment in the agri-food sector. So it's long been clear that innovation will be key to meeting our sustainability goals in all sectors, and this remains paramount for the agri-food sector. While dietary changes and demand management may be warranted, innovation and investments to scale up successful innovations will be key to meeting our sustainability goals. In certain ways, this is perhaps one of the less controversial issues tackled in this series, since experts from a variety of camps see innovation and investment as necessary. But the question becomes, what sorts of innovations are best? Where should we concentrate our efforts? What are the consequences, both unintended uh, or otherwise, that might result and how far from traditional pathways are we willing to stray? So here are our panel of experts as they tackle the question, How can innovation and investment in agri-food help tackle environmental problems associated with the production and distribution of protein foods while helping sustainable production models scale up? Enjoy the podcast and thanks again for listening. We have Andrea Johnston from ICED, who's going to be speaking in her place. And Andrea is going to go first followed by Seth Eitzkin, who's president of Plant Tech, as it says in your program, Uh, Jared Golden, who's an insect farmer who was here yesterday, we heard him comment, and Sarah Martin, an assistant professor with the Department of Political Science at Memorial in Newfoundland. Without further ado, I will welcome Andrea to the podium. So yes, I'm not a former senator, and I'll bring a perspective that's a little different than Joanne may have brought, but I'll I'll talk to you from a government perspective of how we're supporting um, protein in terms of a a tech play, a global R&D investment attraction, and where we feel that of all the economic sectors in Canada, we are doubling down in agriculture and particularly in plant protein. So in budget 2017, and is from a government perspective, everything comes out, big news comes out in different budgets. Um, the government announced six economic strategy tables, one in digital, one in advanced manufacturing, health and biosciences, clean technology, resources of the future, and the sixth one was agriculture. And that means that of those, those are the six sectors where they feel they're going to be the economic growth engines for this country. And their challenges was to recognize that with Canada's aging population and the um, uh, competitiveness and productivity challenges, we need to rethink how these six economic sectors can unlock growth. Um, Without that, our chair's kind of social security systems are going to be... uh, have significant challenges in terms of sustainability in the coming decades. So that was their their challenge. So this is an industry. These are industry led. It was chaired by Murad Al Khatib, who's the CEO of AGT, which is a um, pulse um, company in Regina, Regina, but a global company. And he uh, was surrounded by 20 agri-food uh, companies as well as 
uh, three or four producers, and he also had a producer advisory council to support him. If you're interested, all of the economic strategy table reports are on the uh, ICED Innovation Science Economic Development website, so there's uh, lots to do, and this is really about a call to action for Canada's competitiveness and innovation challenges. Their, their vision is by 2025, Canada will be one of the top five competitors in the agri-food sector, recognized as the most trusted, competitive, and reliable supplier of safe, sustainable, high-quality agri-food products, and an innovator in value-added products to feed the dynamic global consumer. We will have a leading digital and technology-based supply chain and stand out as the world's favorite protein provider. And in, in, so that's their vision, and in, um, within their vision, they have a target of $85 billion in exports by 2025 and a domestic sales target of $140 billion. However, the table felt that in order to achieve this vision, what they needed was an agile regulatory system that supports innovation, provides certainty to government, and protects the health and safety of Canadians. A business climate that supports the scaling up of Canadian companies and makes us the top country in which to invest. A smart, interconnected transportation system that is free of bottlenecks. A broadband and IT infrastructure accessible in all communities and by all businesses. A labor force that meets the range of skills and experiences required to achieve sector growth targets and access the global and domestic markets where goods are traded more freely. So right now, um, government is in this pre-budget period, so every department's putting what they call their budget ask to the Minister of Finance. They're taking what the six economic sectors have developed. They're kind of thinking which one can we implement, which ones we want to move forward, put some funds in, and um, Expect to see some announcements in, on November 21st when the government announced its economic fiscal update and in the budget later on um, in the new year because these tables have kind of definitely built a roadmap. But I think what is interesting is the discussion there about the favored protein provider. A lot of discussion about do we focus on protein and if we're going to double down in, in agriculture, we have to even double down a bit further and, and focus on protein. So that was one area. The other area that's quite interesting is the protein highway. This was um, the brainchild of a former Governor General, David Johnston, and his idea was, well, we have similar landmass with our Midwestern prairie and Midwest, American Midwest uh, counterparts. We have similar climate. We, we grow similar um, proteins. Uh, it's that uh, system of pulses for nitrogen fixing, then go on to canola as another round, and then go into spring wheat, and we kind of rotate that. And there's a lot more we can do in terms of research scientists and able to enable sustainable production, work on crop breeding, look at the research infrastructure, and have industry more integrated, because really that kind of um, Canada-US highway is incredibly tight and there's a lot that they can do there. So that's pretty exciting as well in terms of the work that they're doing. And they've completed, a, I believe they completed an, an asset mapping of uh, research infrastructure um, between the, the two countries. So that's something to keep an eye on as well. And the one area that I'm um, 
particularly involved in right now and fairly excited is Canada announced uh, five superclusters, and we've the government of Canada is putting an investment of 950 million dollars. And this is again where the government of Canada feels um, we need to double down and focus and target our investments. So we're targeting our investments in digital events, manufacturing, um, artificial intelligence, oceans, and protein. Um, we had 50 applications and we drilled down to five. And that again shows you the, the commitment of the government to support research scientists and industry in their, in their uh, moving forward in terms of developing the, the, the crop breeding, the um, sustainable production, the export capacity, because this is some, this is like 13, it's a 13 billion global market and uh, Canada, um, has the right opportunities. We've got the global reach. We've got very strong science. Um, we need to continue to build the value-added capacity in Canada. What we don't want to do is to grow pulses, export it, and then get them um, processed, uh, value-added opportunities in other countries. So this cluster, um, and as it, you know, as I mentioned, the other ones, these are those are pretty big areas as well. So, the fact that the government is focusing on agriculture protein, particularly plant protein, is, is a very exciting uh, area. Their um, their goals, and we're just in the last stages of negotiating the contribution agreements with the five super clusters. Um, and it's it's different because it's about a, it's about building an ecosystem. It's not just um, in government giving money to industry and then de determining the projects. We're we're putting a lot of effort that there's a spillover effect. So we want to ensure that um, there's emphasis on talent and jobs. And so a lot of the discussion for the protein uh, supercluster has been bringing the universities, bringing the colleges together to see how we can ensure we have the talent to, to undertake these bold objectives. Um, we want inclusiveness. The government is committed to inclusive innovation. So we're looking at opportunities to bring indigenous women-owned businesses into these clusters. And the government is also committed to clean, clean growth. So there is an expectation that these broad projects enable more sustainable production. So it is exciting. Um, in the end of the five years when we, uh, the government's funds will, will move on to other areas. We expect to have a, an economic impact of 4.5 billion with this protein supercluster and the creation of more than 4,500 jobs. And again, so it just, I, I gave you three examples of where from a government perspective, there's a lot of attention on protein. Um, I know throughout the last couple of days you would have spoken about the global opportunities, the opportunities in Canada, how we can ensure we do it in a more sustainable way. But there certainly is a lot of interest from the government of Canada's perspective, both from um, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, where I spent a decade, and then also in um, uh, Innovation, Science, Economic Development, that this is a key area where we want to focus our innovation investments focus them in areas where we do have global market opportunities and bring the best talent to Canada and enable us to succeed. Thank you. Great, so now we'll hear from Seth.
Hey, it's Ken. We have PowerPoint. Show me that real quick. Just point it, point it at the screen. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, good morning. Um, it's an honor to be here today with, with, uh, with you all at this uh, prestigious event. It's really from my heart. It's, it's very special, and thank you. Um, I want to open with an apology, actually, for um, perhaps getting a little too animated yesterday. <laughs> Um, we've determined I just didn't have access to the Canadian CBD oil, um, and hopefully we will rectify that. Um, also, this is the first time for me to be at a conference with two philosophers, and um, uh, again, it, it may have seemed that uh, the esteemed uh, professor, Andrew Denton, and I were perhaps getting... Uh, locking horns with each other, but I can assure you we are now best of friends. <laughs> and um, we have a fondness in Greek tragedies, and we were wondering which Greek tragedy best expressed our situation. We decided it was not Oedipus. <laughs> um, but, but of course, perhaps uh, Ulysses, and you know, we all have our uh, hero's journey, right? And, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be heroes in the world, and, and some of us have different opinions about how to do that. Um, so I actually, oh, let me start the timer here. Um, I, I actually, <laughs> a couple minutes, uh, okay. So uh, um, obviously I, I'm defending the, um, uh, well first, uh, just to be clear, so I'm representing Soil for Climate today. I have a private consultancy called Planetech, but I'm here as Soil for Climate, and my colleague Carl Tiedemann is in the front row. Um, and um, so obviously, uh, from yesterday and from our comments, you know that, that, that we are in support of, of animal agriculture done right as a climate solution, and, um, and we believe there needs to be, quite frankly, much more of it. So our um, disagreement is on the messaging around less meat. We would say, of course, less industrial meat, of course, uh, but also less industrial soy and less industrial, you know, uh, forms of agriculture in general. And for us, we say the proof is in the soil. Like either the soil is getting better or it's not. And um, the carbon market, so again, the whole investment side of this is going to be in carbon markets. Or, or that's one of the ways. And um, the proof is going to be in the pudding, literally. Um, the methodologies which are improving soil carbon are going to be the ones that are going to be rewarded. And quite frankly, it's going to be regenerative grazing on most of the earth. And there's going to need to be a lot more cows managed properly to restore most of the planet. And that's also where the greatest carbon drawdown is going to be from. And again, with all the respect that I could muster for my good colleagues from Greenpeace and elsewhere, I understand where you're coming from historically, but that's not the correct narrative to bring into the future. The correct narrative to bring into the future is that we have to restore soil. Most of the world's soil is in semi-arid, um, non-temperate environments, and it needs ruminants, and it needs lots of them, and they need to be managed properly. Okay, that's the thesis. Um, it's hard to see, but the land on the left is um, obviously the restored land, the land on the right is desertification. And you would look at this and you think this is a fantasy. It's not. 
This is reality. I've been to this fence. I call this the paradigm fence. And I just ask you, which side of the paradigm are you on? Okay? Sometimes I open with this slide. I say, which side gets more rain? Which side produces more food? Which side is more hopeful? And the, the zinger is, which side has four times as many livestock? Hello, the side on the left. And how do you think they're managed? Regeneratively. And, and when I go to Zimbabwe, where I've been multiple times now with Alan Savory and those crew, um, they're already close to five times the amount of livestock that they had when they inherited the property. And Alan Savory recently said, we probably need to double that. So we're completely missing the understanding of the role of ruminants in regenerative ecology. We're just, we're just in a totally different space. So I invite you to literally step across that fence into the paradigm of the regenerative future in which livestock are absolutely essential. Now that I've been so serious, I kind of want to be a little more fun. So I'm just going to zip through these slides, and there's a whole bunch here. And you know what? I gave a TEDx talk. You can find it. And all these slides are there. And you can see Alan's TEDx, TEDx talk. But this is kind of not, not the, the best visuals here. Um, this is called the Two Tree Site. Uh, bear for decades. Okay. Now, they increased the livestock by fivefold. And they managed properly. And now look. The land is coming back, that's me. And I say, don't tell me it doesn't work because I'm standing in the efficacy. All right, and when you've stood in the efficacy, I'm sorry, you just take these things personally. You can't hear the message that it doesn't work when you've stood in the proof of it. Um, okay, so I just want to get on to something more fun. The whole thing about water is confusing because when you restore soil, you get more water. That's how you replenish the water table. So we need People talk about we want a broad view. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, I just want to get through this quickly because there's uh, all this data is out there. All these papers are out there in terms of what the drawdown can be. Um, I'm saying basically between 25 and 60 tons per hectare. And, uh, and when you do this globally and the amount of grazing lands that's available, 88 to 210 gigatons, or about 41 to 99 parts per million drawdown through regenerative grazing on depleted land. Um, Tara Garnett didn't like that, and she called me out on it specifically. I'll be happy to debate her about this anytime, anywhere. If people know her and you want to set it up, please let me know. Um, but now I want to get to the f a little bit of a fun. Okay, so this is just a picture of how we think about the future. Uh, this was the real cover of a uh, the New Scientist magazine. This is how they ended the last millennium, 1999. They, uh, they said the next 100 years. And all this doomsday stuff. This is the actual cover from their magazine and um, pictures of how everything is going to be so horrible. But geoengineering will rescue. And I was just so upset, I took out my copy of Photoshop and I just re remade the magazine. <laughs> um, okay, but I... So, you know, how we think about the future is important. And... Uh, so thank you. So this is, okay, now I want to get to the fun part. Okay, because we're at the Alec Trebek uh, Forum, I thought, I thought we would just quickly, you know, for a little bit of fun, play an episode of Future of Sustainable Protein. And um, um, this, I wrote the questions and the answers, and I'm the moderator. So you need, to, you need to answer it the way you think I would answer it, not necessarily the way it might be true. Um, okay. 
but uh, but I everything I say I and you know say scientific scrutiny will will prove it out. Okay, the answer: the future of protein. Uh, let's do, do two teams. Let's say the left side, the right side, left side. Uh, what's the question? Um, that's good, but that's not the answer that I'm looking for. <laughs> the, uh, the future of protein. Yes! Yes! What is regeneratively produced meat? Very good. Yes, we get the ding. Next one. The answer. The place where most atmospheric carbon will be sequestered. What's the question? Yes! Very good group here. Um, the answer. A method of management to assure livestock get to the right place at the right time for the right reason. What's the question? Yes, very good group here, holistic plan grazing. Um, answer, a synthetic, ooh, I may get, I don't know, uh, a synthetic fake meat product that purports to be the future of protein but isn't. Okay, well that's good enough. It's, uh, what is beyond meat? And, uh, and then the last one, the answer, this financial instrument, abbreviated CRC, and created through open source blockchain technology by new companies such as Nori, oh, I'm sorry, that should be Nori, is central to carbon markets. What's the question? The last Jeopardy question is always the toughest. <laughs> Consider this double Jeopardy. Do, 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 do. Abbreviated CRC, that's the giveaway. Come on, you can take out your smartphone and look it up. All right, okay. What is a carbon removal certificate? And, and because this is the forum on, on investment, um, you know, please look, at, look up NORI, N-O-R-I, and look up blockchain technology and carbon removal certificates. Um, and they wanted, wanted to be very careful to use the term certificate versus credit. There's nuances in the differences of language there. So our proposition also is that the carbon markets and using technology and companies like this will be part of the investment strategy for drawdown and that regenerative grazing will actually be one of the cash cows, if you will. Thank you very much. Thank you, Seth. Okay, so now we have Dr. Jared Goldine, president and co-founder of Entomo Farms, who apologizes. Do you want to tell them? He has to leave right after because yeah. he's, he's running to catch a plane. Yeah, I was, again, thank you for the organizers and Ryan and Shannon. It's been a fantastic couple days and it's been lovely meeting everybody and I appreciate the passion and, and the love and everybody's commitment to I think um, summed up very well to not be an asshole and leave the world in a better place than we found it. Um, maybe the most important thing I, I, I'm going to take home and certainly underscores the way I try to uh, live my life. So um, before we get started, I think a kind of framework or context I want to offer about this whole edible insect business paradigm, new protein, is really to look at it maybe and in an analogous way to the way in which we've learned that working out in the old traditional way isn't the best way to maximize strength or fitness or cardiovascular health. That doing things more dynamically, 
um, or, or in different ways may improve you know, your efforts when you're going to the gym. So I think the question first is, can edible insects play a role in improving people's health and health outcomes? Is it a food that can act medicinally? Can the fiber be of benefit to the gut biome? Can the protein be absorbable? How much more absorbable, or if at all, compared to meat? What about the other macronutrients and micronutrients? So studies are already showing that in, in certain situations, like with iron and magnesium, um, manganese, copper, and zinc, that the concentration of these minerals was much higher in the crickets than meat, but more importantly, it was far more bioavailable. So already there's anecdotal evidence to suggest that edible insects are really, really healthy and that their nutritive value is excellent and there may be clinical benefit. Um, an observational study found in communities where they eat a lot of edible insects, there was very low incidence of autoimmune diseases. So there's universities in Israel that are now looking at whether that co there's a um, positive correlation there um, and, and those are some of the reasons. So that's kind of the framework. It, it's not to disrupt the meat industry per se. It's, it's not like we've discussed earlier on and you know, that these are contrast. Uh, it's either this choice or that choice. It's not binary. If edible insects are healthy for you the same way water is, maybe you want to drink more water and maybe you want to eat more insects. You can still eat steak, you can still eat fish, you can still eat chicken, no problem. It, you know, all this is is an opportunity to give people another choice about food that may be healthy that most of us in the West have largely dismissed for all the wrong reasons over the last you know, few generations. So, so that's the, the context here. Um, given that this panel is really around investment, I'm going to try to kind of share our journey of, of, you know, over the last four years of how we started, uh, the money we raised, who our investors are, and kind of where we've landed uh, today. So Entomo Farms was founded by myself and my two brothers, Darren and Ryan. They had been farming insects for about 10 years for the um, reptile business, for people's snakes and bearded dragons and stuff like that, and the bait industry. And they, had a, they have a wonderful company that's been successful doing that. I was always envious and you know, wanted to join them in business. We're one of those weird, tight, close families. Um, and um, I was just looking for that opportunity. My background is in chiropractic. I've been in healthcare, witnessed the association between what people eat and how healthy they are, especially with respect to musculoskeletal health. And um, I, they were having much too much fun without me. So when the United Nations and the Food and Agriculture Organization put out that paper that was referenced in another slide yesterday, titled Edible Insects, Future Prospects for Food and Feed Security, and around the same time, a, a gentleman was on Shark Tank pitching a protein bar made with this stuff called cricket powder. Um, and my brothers had already been kind of looking into it a little bit and did some studies with Guelph. And I called them up and I said, this is, this is it. The three, they used to be three ducks, now they're three crickets. They're in a row. This is our chance. Let's see if we can convince an investor to, to make a small investment and let's start North America's first human-grade edible insect farm and let's see if the United Nations, you know, if that fire can really underscore an opportunity to get us started. And that's what we did. So we started with um, 5,000 square feet. Now, we've heard a lot over and over again that edible insects are eaten in 80% of the world. Billions of people eat them every day. Um, and 
um, they are a complete protein. They have all essential amino acids. Again, when comparing cricket powder to a steak, they're twice as high in protein. Meat's about 30%, crickets are about 60%. So maybe crickets are the most efficient source of protein and it's not red meat. We have to look at uh, di digestibility studies and, and, and that kind of thing along the way. But the exciting part for us, and I can tell you for our investors, is not necessarily the protein piece because as we've learned, most North Americans get enough protein, albeit perhaps it's not the most sustainable source of protein. And again, that's not the emphasis of the argument. But what we are is fiber deficient. And it may be that the chitinase and chitin fibers in edible insects are the best source of fiber for the human gut biome. How interesting would that be? And a lot of the root vegetables that had far superior fibers than the vegetables we have today, we don't farm anymore. And yacon root is a good example of that. So they have a, you know, a complete nutrition profile. I think the iron and B12 and fiber are perhaps the most exciting elements of their nutritive value. Um, they use m less resources than, than meat and other livestock. How much less? We've got lots of work to do to figure that out. I don't even think that we understand the, the gray, the blue, and the, and the green water associated with meat farming. In insect farming, I'm sure it's less. Is it 10% less or 10,000% less, I, I'm not sure. But if we look at average numbers that are out there and what we've learned today, if a family of four chose to get their protein from insects instead of red meat one day a week for a year, so in the morning they put some cricket powder in a muffin and in the afternoon they sprinkled some crickets on a pizza and in the evening maybe they made a chili with some cricket powder, that family would save about 650,000 liters of water a year. So if you begin to extrapolate that, and that's all, all forms of water, and that's again just using the average numbers that are out there from the WHO, and um, maybe, maybe they're not exact, but I think they're a framework to start with. Um, so we are being inundated with researchers all over the world, master's students, PhD students wanting to study all elements of this. One of the most exciting pieces is the HNRCA at Tufts University brought academia, industry, and um, the government together. And we put out a white paper that's in the Journal of Nutrition that underscores a framework for how should, what is the pathway to research look like for this category. And let's get some collaboration going and uh, accelerate, accelerate the research. That's um, my brother Darren, and he's holding up what's called a cricket condo. So we grow these insects in retrofit chicken barns. We have now almost 80,000 square feet of, of uh, retrofit chicken barns. And then we have a, um, a processing facility, which isn't a processing facility because processing means you add or you remove something from the food. We don't, we, we rinse them, we dehydrate them, and we grind them. So I don't know what word in English to use for our process because it's not processing of anything. It's a whole food that's unprocessed, which you look at the ingredients and it just says cricket powder. So how many packages in a grocery store have one ingredient on their list? Milling. So it's a milling facility. Great, thank you. Two things I can take home. So that's what uh, uh, the chicken barn looks like now. In each barn, there's about 35 million crickets. So we have over 100 million head of cricket. Maybe we're the biggest farm in the world. I'm not sure. Our, our livestock's pretty small, but uh, 
but that's okay. Um, here's what it looks like inside. So these are the cricket condos. The one on the south side are, are much more expensive than the ones on the north side. They're <laughs> closer to the lake. And um, they're essentially free range. They hang out, they hide, they eat, and they drink. There's no stress. They live their full life cycle, which is about six weeks. So they would die in a couple of days if we didn't cull them anyway. Um, the basic grains for now and a water trough. And uh, that's it. And you would know if they're happy and you would know if they're stressed out. If you walk in there and there's very little movement, they're happy. If they're stressed, they're jumping all over the place. And it's only the male crickets that are mating that chirp. And my brother always says, you know, one chirping cricket in your house can drive you crazy, but thousands of them up north sounds like a symphony. So here, we're really a business-to-business business. -business. Um, I think we would love to model the sun-made ra sun raisin business where everybody's bought a pack of the red sun-made raisins in a grocery store. But what you don't know is they're really a wholesaler. And every raisin and every muffin and bread probably comes from sun-made. So we want to supply our powder and crickets all over the world, but we also would love to sell our powder and our roasted crickets as an ingredient in grocery stores but we may not want to compete with our customers who are making consumer packaged goods like these chirp chips that you can find in some Loblaws. These were three women from, um, I'm not sure which university in the Northeast US, but they're now in San Francisco. This is the second business that Mark Cuban invested in that uh, is an insect-based business. And these chips are delicious and they're made with vegetables and cricket powder. So you can send your kid to school with a bag of these chips and they probably have the healthiest lunch on the playground. Um, Paul had some of these slides up yesterday, and, and thanks for that uh, shout out there, Paul. And this is what a, a future aisle may look like in a grocery store, where you may have this sustainable protein um, aisle or something like that from a marketing perspective. And what we've learned is if you just have a bar or you just have a bag of powder on a shelf, it doesn't sell well. But when you have pasta and pasta sauce and chips and crackers and everything, the perception is the category is normalized. Um, legitimized and people I think see, oh, I'll buy that for my kids and that for my wife and I, I, I'm going to take these home. Um, that's what the, the President's Choice is the fifth most trusted brand in Canada. We launched with President's Choice in uh, the spring. It's been extremely successful. They're rolling it out into 800 shoppers drug mart. So we tested the thesis that there is pent up demand from the low house consumer, a lifestyle of health and sustainability. That demographic is not specific to anybody. There's seniors who care, and there's young people who care. So it's so awesome to have Loblaws normalize the category and give us that platform. The second is that we got an investment from a large Canadian food company called Maple Leaf Food. They took a minority stake in our business. I believe that their passion and their desire to innovate is sincere. Um, everything they've worked with us on and done with us so far has demonstrated that, and we're really excited. This was a huge ad that Loblaw put on a subway station downtown. Um, it's, it's cool to see. You can see the size of it with the, with the woman next to it. This is one of our customers from Montreal. Amazing product, gorgeous packaging, absolutely delicious. These are healthy protein bars. They're, they're fruit-based, they're cold-pressed. Same thing with the crackers, awesome with some hummus. So you can begin to see where the CPG piece of this will go. Thank you very much. And again, I really appreciate everybody's point of view and perspective and passion and all the best to all of you. And thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Shannon.
Great. So last up, we have also Dr. Sarah Martin, Assistant Professor with the Department of Political Science at Memorial University. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, thanks to Shannon and Ryan for uh, bringing us all together. I'm really appreciative. I'm very, very humbled to be here today. Um, I also want to thank all the people that have fed us and cleaned up after us today and yesterday, all the folks who work here that support us in the work that we're doing. Um, and in addition, thanks to all the folks who provided the food that have nourished us over the last couple of days. Uh, the title of my uh, presentation today is the future of the pro of the future of protein, the and market, not the or market. I specialize in the global political economy of food and agriculture, and I specialize in finance, uh, looking at agricultural finance. Uh, the question we were asked to reflect on this morning was, how can innovation and investment in agri-food help tackle environmental problems associated with the production and distribution of protein foods while helping sustainable production models scale up? So here's my argument. Uh, the future of protein will be shaped by those who are investing and betting on protein markets today. Spoiler alert. Uh, it is primarily the same large agri-food corporations that dominate industrial agriculture today, unless we change. Uh, in the last couple of days, we've had a lot of focus on production, uh, debates about different models of animal agriculture, cricket agriculture, and so on. And we've talked a lot about changing the habits of consumers. Uh, but we haven't touched much about what Jennifer Clapp would call the middle. Uh, what is shaping the choice uh, for farmers, different kinds of production models, different kinds of being, ways of being on the land, and what's uh, shaping the choice of us consumers at the other end? So I want to talk a bit about the middle. To understand my argument, I want to talk briefly about how agriculture and investment have long interacted and the special challenges of agricultural finance. I will then discuss who is investing in alternative meat products uh, or alternative proteins, let's say, and what makes these markets especially valuable to those investors. Finally, I want to suggest uh, that, that the characteristics that make these markets valuable are the very characteristics that create barriers to more socially and environmentally just food system by crowding out alternatives. So, I want to talk a bit about agricultural finance. As many of you know, for a variety of reasons, agriculture is risky. We have drought, we have volatile commodity markets, we have diseases for animals and so on, diseases for plants. And because of this risk, private capital has generally been very reluctant to invest in agriculture. As a result, for most of the 20th century, governments in the global north, and to a certain degree in the global south, especially around independence movements, have created policies, institutions that support farmers, and at the same time rein in excessive speculation in food and agricultural markets. State regulations have also been in place to assure competition. That is, to restrict monopolies and oligopolies from controlling agri-food markets. 
And why have these models been in place? Why have these regulations and policies been in place? Because during the 20th century, farmers were a strong political force, especially in the early part of the 20th century, and they pushed for these changes. But in the last number of decades or so, supports for farmers have shifted and in many cases been eroded and financial regulations have been relaxed. And we've seen an uptick in corporate concentration, especially in agri-food. The same kind of corporate concentration that we saw in the late 19th century that these regulations were put in place to constrain. Now these changes, uh, relaxation and reg uh, regulation around finance, uh, relaxation around competition, uh, controls have implications for innovation and investment in agriculture. As state support has pulled back, private investment continues to be reluctant because of these risks. But what if there were ways to limit these risks for private investment? Limit market risks by, let's say, uh, controlling uh, aspects of the agricultural market, such as the market for protein. This is already happening with global corporate consolidation. In the agricultural input sector, for example, in the last year we've seen the recent merger um, or actually acquisition by the German uh, company Bayer of the US-based Monsanto. Um, we've seen continued consolidation in the meat sector. These is, I'm talking global meat sector. Uh, the Chinese corporation Shineway uh, bought the largest US pork producer Smithfields uh, a couple of years ago. So we see large corporations operating in the middle. Okay, so uh, let's see. So who are the key investors uh, today? I'm gonna to use two examples from the US, uh, two agri-food corp uh, corporations uh, who are investing in alternative meats, specifically Tyson and Cargill. Uh, I want to start with Tyson. Uh, it's a $39 billion meat and processed meat company. Tom Hayes, the CEO of Tyson, has recently discussed how his company is going to be focused on sustainable proteins and cleaner foods. And he's led the change at Tyson from a meat producer and processor to a protein producer and processor. And this has led the shift, a shift in the company to invest in cultured meats, plant-based alternatives. So these have included future meat technologies, Memphis meats, both cultured meats, uh, and beyond meats, uh, the plant uh, and beyond meat. Uh, the second example is Cargill, uh, although Maple Leaf is also uh, claiming to be the most sustainable protein company uh, as well. So we see that change in Maple Leaf as well. Uh, Cargill CEO David McClellan in a recent interview extolled the value of alternative proteins from pea powder. Uh, to cellular meat, and like Tyson, Cargill also bought a stake in Memphis Meats. So according to him, uh, the future for Cargill is in the lab, it's with alternative proteins, and with more efficient animal agriculture. Uh, as many of you know, Cargill is the largest privately held corporation in the United States. We're not too sure exactly how big it is because it is privately held. So we have companies, whether Tyson or Cargill, uh, turning their companies towards protein and seemingly away from animal agriculture, seemingly away from animal industrial agriculture. 
So what do these investments look like in the context of these corporations? Tyson's Executive Vice President of Corporate Strategy and Chief Sustainability Officer stated, when we think about investments like this, we're thinking about an and model, not an or model. In fact, the investments in alternative proteins pale in relations to these corporations' business models. Cargill, uh, as I mentioned, there are no clear figures uh, because they're privately held, but they recently stated that they've invested nearly $600 million in conventional protein. That's industrial animal protein. In other words, CAFOs and other industrial models that we have been critiqued over the last couple of days. Uh, and Tyson has started a venture capital fund that is investing in sustainable technology investment, uh, around $150 million uh, in these alternative proteins. Um, but the, this fund of $150 million is not just alternative proteins, but it's also uh, other kinds of sustainable tech. Uh, so the amount of money that they've uh, invested in sustainable technology, including alternative uh, proteins, is uh, less than half the cost of a recent poultry plant that they're building and pales in comparison to their other investments in industrial animal agriculture. So why is, why the interest? So first of all, I just want to sort of summarize is that although these companies are turning towards alternative proteins, their actual investments in alternative proteins are very minor compared to the, the majority, the vast majority of their work. So why the interest in this sector? Um, albeit limited, as I, I stated, if this agriculture sector is risky, uh, the key is how to scale up these alternative proteins. And I'm going to be looking at some of the issues around cellular uh, meat and why they're investing particularly in this model. No technology is neutral. And I would argue uh, that technology, whether agroecology or regenerative agriculture or lab-grown meat, requires regulatory supports it requires resources and it requires institutions. Why this interest in lab-grown meats? Uh, the key is vertical integration or market control. The Good Food Institute, it's a nonprofit that works with uh, scientists and investors and entrepreneurs around plant-based food and also the cultured meats that we're talking, out, uh, talking about. Uh, maps out six elements that are required for cultured meat. Uh, cell lines, uh, cell culture media, scaffolding and structuring, uh, bioreactors, and supply and distribution. These are the steps that are required to get uh, cultured meat to the market. What's important about mapping out these steps is that these are the critical technologies that are required, but they serve as lucrative intellectual property licensing opportunities. In other words, IP, intellectual property, is foundational to the supply chain and IP will become the quote-unquote guiding factor of companies' future focus and key to securing the vertical integration of supply chains. Technology is not inherently good or bad, but it does arrive with a framework. Uh, it is not launched alone. In this case, intellectual property rights are critical. And this goes back to an earlier point. 
agriculture. It can be a challenge to make money because of the risk. Much of the risk can be alleviated if you control the market. One way to do that is through intellectual property rights. Control of supply chains is really the ultimate aim of intellectual property, start, um, the cell-based meat startups. Uh, and, and they'll, in interviews, they'll absolutely say this. This is what they're after. The venture capital is in there to get the intellectual property rights in order to um, gain purchase in the markets. So I just want to summarize uh, a bit here. While the alternative protein market is growing, it is small. It's very small and is expected to have little or no impact on traditional pork, meat, uh, or poultry demand. It is business as usual with industrial meat. If we are looking for socially and environmentally just food system, we have to look at who is sitting and operating in the middle between farmers and consumers. In turn, we can look, in turn, we can look to the past for how to reassert fair competition and access. And we need to look towards the future and the multiple ways that people around the world sustain themselves through many different food systems and we need to re-embed the marketplace within environmental and social constraints rather than market constraints. Thank you very much. Okay, that was just great. It reminded me, the panel, of that um, expression to a worm in horseradish, the world is horseradish. I'm a sociologist of technology and innovation, and I thought the panel would be about innovation, and it was. But everyone seemed to grab onto investment in innovation. So, <laughs> so that was interesting to me. Um, I was going to do maybe a brief summary of all the, each of the panelists to facilitate discussion, but I think in the interest of time, we've gone a bit over. I will just invite the panelists to respond to one another. Is there any conversation that we want to have among ourselves before turning it to the audience? Yeah. Uh, I'll just say that it's just delightful to, to hear all the different uh, ideas. Um, I, I love the cricket idea. <laughs> and um, I had some crickets last night in that meringue that we people were here last night. It's a little crunchy, but it was okay, right? <laughs> um, and then, so that's like the good news. The, the sort of the bad news is like what uh, the last speaker just said about the IP in the sort of the fake meat movement. Um, that's a problem, and I don't know quite what the, the solution is, but I acknowledge that that's a problem. Yeah. I wonder if, um do you want to elaborate a tiny bit, Seth, and say for whom is that a problem or what's the problem well, in your... I mean, as you heard, I mean, we, we stand against the fake meat movement. You know, we want real meat that's the animals are on the ground restoring the soil. And I want to see much more of that. And I'm disturbed by the narrative that fake meat is a solution to anything. It's not. It's a, it's a disaster in every regard. Um, except, apparently, for the people who have the IP and who are convincing other people that this is a good thing to invest in. So you've got your Leonardo DiCaprio's, you've got your Bill Gates's running around the world saying, oh, look at us, we're, invest we're investing in, in uh, Beyond Meat. 
to me, to me it's a disaster. It's hard to like keep calm when I see this going on because that's just, that's just ramming our life support system just head on uh, into, into disaster. So it's all the wrong messaging. It's all the wrong forms of production. It's all the wrong forms of, um, of investing. And you're right, it's because of IP. And I don't, I don't know how to get around that. I don't know how to solve that problem except to measure the soil carbon. It's always just gonna come back to the soil. Show me the data of the soil getting better. And the soil will always be getting better with regeneratively produced meat. It will always be getting worse with wheat gluten-based products, which is industrial wheat production with fertilizers and tilling and everything else. And so when the market shifts to carbon itself, a lot, that will be the solution. No one will want that IP because it'll be worthless. I wonder if um, Sarah might just say, I read your paper as being slightly more than just um, problematic investment in cultured meat. Uh, are there other kinds of problems that you were meaning to address? Yeah, I, th I think we have to really look at uh, who's who's shaping those markets, and I I would I would be cautious about creating new kinds of markets. For example, the carbon markets, um, or at least thinking about how they are formed. I, I guess my point is that how the markets are formed and who's actually operating in those markets, we need to pay very close attention to. And that the folks who are operating in those areas don't necessarily have the same considerations for the environment uh, that the folks around these tables do. Um, and there's also recent information, especially around blockchain uh, technology, that is a huge environmental uh, drag. Uh, there's huge issues around blockchain as far as the energy use of maintaining blockchain. And so I, I have some concerns about that. Uh, and then the other, I mean, the main point is that in agri-food in general, we're seeing huge corporate concentration. And they, those operators are really shaping the market and we really have to pay attention to those. And I really think that the government needs to intervene, especially around competition. Uh, to start directly challenging the power of those corporations and how they're shaping uh, our agri-food systems. And I think we also have to look very carefully at intellectual property uh, and its emergence since about the 1990s, especially around agri-food. That's where a lot of the corporations have really staked their claim is around intellectual property. And they seemingly are doing that in the future as well. I wonder if Andrea might respond to that, given the given ISED's move. Well, I could talk about the competition. Of course, in Canada, <clears throat> we have the Competition Bureau, and agriculture, in many ways, is just like the telecoms. Like we want consumer choice, and so when Bayer Monsanto merged, it had to go through a review. Just like we want to ensure there's choice in the telecommunications. I mean, I think the reality is in every um, economic sector that's the consolidation is, is happening more and more. But I'm wondering, too, what one thing we haven't really talked about and what I'd be interested in is, is consumers. I mean, at the end of the day, the marketplace is consumer preference. And you, that's why you're seeing Cargill and Tyson pivot from their traditional market segments to alternatives. And so I'd be really curious to know kind of like how do you, it's fascinating that Loblaws is taking you on and they don't take you, take people on and without a lot of business analytics. So they must feel that there is a, 
an emerging consumer demand for what you're producing. And, and I don't know, maybe it's too early, but have you, have you seen kind of your market, your demand increasing over the last couple of years? Yeah, so, you know, the first thing I want to say, and, and I agree with everybody's points, and, and they're, you know, really in line, but when, when you consider the issue of food security, the one consideration for lab-grown meat, I mean, what if there's a natural disaster or, or a, a, a war that uses chemical weapons where the lands that we use and the pastures to graze the meat are completely wiped out? I would argue that having the option that's you know, fortified, in place, efficiently to grow meat could be, could be a great choice for if and when those disasters happen. And the neat thing about cricket powder, as one example of the insects, is the shelf life, we're doing a shelf life study, we're two years into it, there's no degradation. Like, it's quite amazing. And if it's stored, if stored in a cool, dry place, or, or made with a pasta that has, you know, five, ten-year shelf life, we may be able to store this food literally for the idea of food security should there be natural disasters or man-made disasters. So I don't think we could, should completely dismiss it, irrespective of the IP, irrespective of the politics, irrespective of the economics, just for that reason alone may be a good reason to consider it. Um, to answer your question, um, what I can tell you is that we, we had this thesis that there's pent-up demand from this low-house consumer for food that's healthy and sustainable. But we never had a platform to test that thesis. So we feel that President's Choice and their amazing team of innovators who, who, who chose to, to go forward with this um, gave us that platform. And without being very specific, I can tell you that in the first quarter, sales were four times higher than what they thought they would be. And because of its success, like I said, they're rolling it out into Shoppers Drug Mart. Now, there, there's a long way to go still, and I'm sure there'll be ebbs and flows, but they are committed. They're, they'll be rolling out new products every quarter. Um, it's part of their innovation strategy around sustainability. And like I said, I, I have these meetings with them. These people are trying to do what we're trying to do. I know they're Loblaws. I know it's maple leaf food, but, but they also have children, and they also have grandchildren, and they also care about the, the environment and, and people's health. So, you know, it sucks that economics is tied to all of this. I have to put a roof on my head, pay for my children's education. It, it would be awesome if, if we didn't have to, but we do, and, and we're working in the system that we have. With respect to the government loans, though, I have a question for you. Um, are, are most of that funding grants or loans? Um, they are, it's different programs have uh, payable contributions. Um, and other, the other, in terms of the, in terms of the super clusters, it's, indus it's industry matching funds, so it's like a grant. But other programs are repayable contributions. So if a company like Maple Leaf is looking to invest in a certain area and is successful in government, it's a repayable contribution after a certain number of years. So, because we, we are the recipient and, and we're excited and so grateful to have received about $750,000 in, in, in funding, but there are seven, eight, nine percent interest rates. Mm -hmm. So it's tough for me to feel proud of a government that has lending money as a business of the government. 
um, again, I'm, you know, rather give away less without any interest than, than more with. And again, I know it's not easy, but it's just frustrating because, you know, we, we, we are losing our business to third parties. And, you know, it may soon not be our, you know, it's it possible that it's not ours anymore. And um, we have some wonderful Canadian anchor companies that are encouraged to step up and, and, and care to make a difference because if the governments can't do it, then we're going to have to rely on the corporations. Shall we move it out to the audience? Ryan, I think you had a question. Two uh, specific questions. Um, to Seth, there were two questions that came up earlier uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, that I'm curious to hear your, your answers to them. Um, there was, or today, Scott asked a, a question about the carbon um, sponge or the, the uh, saturation point of carbon. I'm curious to hear your, your response to that. And Tulika had asked a question yesterday about, sure, let's use ruminants, but why do we have to eat them? I'm curious to hear your, your response to that. And I, want, I have a question for Andrea. A, a, a lot of the panels keep coming back to uh, uh, restorative agriculture and or agroecology, which we've defined differently, but uh, agroecology is clearly uh, growing as a, as, a, as a concept in, uh, in, in the food movement and the agriculture movement, uh, sustainable ag movement, and, and it's become mainstream now in global policy terms in terms of the, you know, every tweet that I see from the FAO is supporting agroecology, supporting agroecology, and I, and Sometimes I feel like the, <laughs> the government's response is, is completely deaf to that in, in, in its focus on uh, almost the opposite, hyper-industrialization of our, of our food sector to, to, to maximize these economic benefits and gains from trade. And I'm just curious to, to know if that is on the agenda at all uh, in, in terms of an, uh, of an awareness of agroecology in, in government. Is that, is that just... Uh, not filtering through is it is it uh, is it just sort of seen as a, a as a thing for the developing world? Like, I, I'm just curious to hear about whether that, that registers. Who would like to start? <laughs> so I'll, I'll start in terms of well, I mean the terminology agroecology. I, I think the terminology the government uses is clean growth sustainable development and that they haven't and they're not sure they're, they're picking up that specific term um, and so uh, like I'll take an example from I said we have something called the strategic innovation fund and uh, it enables R&D scaling up for for companies and in order to get um, Rebatable contributions, they have to commit to reducing greenhouse gases if they're creating a new manufacturing facility. What we're trying to do is just embed it in the economic discussion rather than have it as a separate piece. Um, you know, whether that we're successful in that and, and you can demonstrate the usefulness, it's hard to tell, but we're trying to just not have a separate discussion about um, sustainable development, it has to be mainstream or it's just not going to happen. And like, I come back to the example 
of McDonald's in out west with sustainable beef. I mean, they develop the criteria for sustainable beef. They selected Canada and Canadian uh, livestock ranchers to, to take this pilot on, and it creates a momentum on its own. And it's it's just the reality is there's going to be tons of non-government organizations, multinationals out there. They understand the need for sustainable production. They understand where consumers are going. And in fact, they have more of an ability to make change than the government of Canada does. So we kind of have to find where our partners are. And sometimes our partners are multinationals and we have to kind of work with them in developing those standards. And if I can just add to that before Seth gets to his question. Um, on a granular level, I can tell you that people reach out from AMAFRA all the time to come and visit us, to come and see what we're up to, to host them for tours. CFIA, Jeff Leal, who was the Minister of Agriculture, actually was from Peterborough and where our farms are. So there was some really interesting conflicts of interest for him because he was fully supportive of what we were up to. But um, it will never be enough for me. I will always feel that they can do more. I'm curious why they're not pounding on our door as the largest supplier right now. A, a, a Canadian company has the opportunity to, to grow. Um, we, we have to chase them. It surprises me that there aren't more people who are decision makers with, with purse strings knocking on our door saying, you know, it's for real now. It's legitimized. How can we be of more support? So I'm grateful and there's legitimate personal interest. Um, from the you know aspects of the government that that we've seen, but uh, I always wish that I'd do more. I think there are a few questions in the audience, There's maybe class, so back there. But we'll go one, two, because they're okay. You found them. We'll, we'll figure it out. Sure. Yeah. Did, you, did you want me to field that question before? Excuse me. Did you want me to field the question oh, okay. that was already asked? Um, so about the sponge. Um, so, you know, you can, um, you know, just on your laptops right now, you know, just Google uh, carbon cycle. Um, you know, I've been doing this for years. Uh, the terrestrial biosphere is the largest sink, you know, by far. And um, no one really knows how much really has been lost, but estimates are like, a teraton, a thousand, get thousand billion tons. Um, when Ratan Law at the Ohio State University, uh, one of the world's sort of leading soil climate scientists, I mean, he, you know, he, his numbers are conservative. He talks about hundreds of gigatons. I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, I mean, all right, if it, if it, if it maxes out at 100, 200 gigatons, I mean, okay, that's an all right problem to have, I guess. Um, the, the real sort of limiting factor, as far as I can to, tell, is the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's the actual limiting factor. That's the sort of the, the, the osmotic force or the chemical force. Um, and uh, between the ice ages and the interglacial ages of the last, you know, million years or so, um, it's fluctuated between about 190 and 290 parts per million. And so the, what's called the interglacial, these sort of temporary warm periods, that's 290 parts per million. That's the high. Um, when we get to the, the Ice Age, which is actually the more dominant um, uh, regime, climate regime, if you will, 
Um, it's more like 190 parts per million. See, we're at 400 now. We're already in an entirely different uh, atmospheric chemistry landscape. Uh, there's something called the equilibrium temperature, which is actually what the temperature would be in an equilibrium state for the forcing that the parts per million, it's 10 degrees C warmer than now. Uh, people just have no idea what's coming and how devastating it can be if we don't drastically change. And so this whole thing about the IPC report, it's like I hear people say, oh my God, I'm so worried about that. I'm like, you have no idea how watered down that document is. I mean, that is, that's, that's just like, you know, Kool-Aid with no alcohol in it at all. You know, and we need to be doing straight shots of you know what. Okay, so, so the reality because of the mandate of the IPCC is only to give a number by 2100. And that's it. So they can say 1.52 degrees C by 2100 if we do well. That's not how physics works. It doesn't just stop at 2100. It's, a, it's an S curve. We're at, the, we're at the, the flat part of the S curve. And you know when it goes up like that? When the, when the sea ice is gone. Remember in eighth grade in middle school, you did that little experiment with the, with the water, with the ice in it, and you and put it on the Bunsen burner, and it was always the same temperature, and the ice was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden, when the ice was gone, the temperature went like that. It's not a gradual increase. It's an That's what's happening right now. The only reason we're not devastated already is because there's still ice. Okay? When the ice is gone, it's bang, like that. Rapid temperature increase. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to interject. I don't even remember the question. Okay. The, oh, the, the, I think the, we'll go to the, if it's the, okay, Seth, we'll go. There are the lots question, of questions. But just really quickly, the question about the saturation, it, it's really sort of a non-question. We have to be doing this. And the only real saturation is parts per million in the atmosphere. When it gets down below 300, that'll be an okay time to, you know, be happy. Great. Right, thank you. Okay. Okay. So um, I've actually got uh, three comments. One is, and just coming back to Ryan's comment about agroecology, and this is, I mean, definitely FAO is, is, is promoting it. it. There is obviously a global south implication, but the European uh, Parliament is looking at it. So it is being looked at in the global north and being looked at seriously. So I think that's, you know, from a Canadian perspective, don't discount the fact that it's not help happening elsewhere. Secondly, actually, I do agree with you there, Andrea, about you know, the, it, it, large corporations getting on board and may driving the change. I come from Loblaws. I'm a retired Loblaw executive. That's where an enormous amount of change can be made. And McDonald's, certainly in what they're doing, and if others get on the bandwagon, can have a very, very marked impact, much more so in some ways than government. And then finally, I, I, I don't want to rain on, on Jared's parade too much because I think it's a very interesting prospect what he's have. Jared, though, I would contend that a lot of your success at the moment is not environmental interest. It's because there's an enormous amount of interest in protein. And in fact, you have, an, you have a, a product that is there and meeting consumers' desire to bulk up on protein. I do think, though, and where I think the, the fantastic thing about your product is, is that it is actually uh, is dealing with the ick factor, as we've talked about in the past. And as the ick factor dissipates, and I think what you're doing is going to be, increasingly then I think your product will have more of a role in terms of from an environmental opportunity. And, and you're looking at the science of it. Thank you. Great. I think there were some women who had questions as well. Maybe this woman here.
Thank you very much. Tulika Rostogi with Humane Canada. I wanted to first say how much I appreciated all of the panel's presentations. Um, thank you all and uh, thanks to, for bringing these wonderful people. Um, all of the panels were fantastic. I just wanted to raise a couple of questions or points on the basis of um, animal welfare and humane considerations. Uh, because sometimes um, we, t we tend to talk a lot about um, other aspects and um, innovation and investment, sure, and environment and, and climate change just recently in the previous panel. I wanted to um, respectfully talk about animal welfare, so a paradigm for those who may not know of how to define animal welfare is um, three uh, aspects, three pillars, well, or in a Venn diagram, three circles. One being biological functioning, the second being effective states, and the third being natural condition. And um, Jared, this question is mainly to you, or this comment. Um, uh, you spoke about the crickets in, in the farm, in the barns that you have, and you spoke about the fact that they're, they're behaving normally. Um, so that speaks a little bit to biological functioning, perhaps. We don't really have a great understanding of the um, uh, experiences of many species on this planet. Um, basically, even some of the mammalian species that we're farming, and certainly some of the fish species that we're still learning a lot about. We probably have very, very, very little knowledge, if any, about insects and their experiences. So I wonder about the effective states of these um, animals, that like what is it that they're experiencing positive and negatively. Um, they're not going outdoors at all from, from how I understood the farming setup. Um, so what natural conditions are being provided to them? Um, so just a question really about that as, um, as a, a viable uh, approach from an animal welfare perspective, and a question regarding um, how are they slaughtered? How are they um, actually um, mill, like prior to milling, how are they killed? And um, the second comment, uh, or on a different topic regarding animal welfare that I just wanted to mention is that um, while there may be many questions and many concerns regarding cell-cultured meat products from an animal welfare perspective, there's actually many people who are very excited about um, this form of um, production because of the fact that we don't have to slaughter and kill and use animals um, in that process. Great, thank you. Thanks. Just first quickly to Paul's comment, um, thank you, and I agree with you in part. When that study came out on the gut biome and how cricket powder improved, improved probiotic microbiota associated with better health, our sales that week shot up. It's for its health reasons that we have early adoption. It's not for bodybuilders per se or people looking to bulk up on protein. And we learned very quickly after kind of launching as a sustainability company that people were pretty selfish. Um, they'll talk about sustainability and spending bucks on sustainability, but they won't. But they will spend dollars if they think it will improve their health or the health of their kids. But that we're at the beginning of that story, and, and I appreciate your point. Um, there are entomologists that have been studying insects for years. I think that there is a lot of knowledge. We're, we're working with entomologists at different universities in, in Canada to answer some of these questions and look at how we can maximize yield and, and um, uh, just look at the, the chemistry and sociology and all these different aspects and elements so that if we're gonna do it, 
and it's going to be industrialized, that we do it a bit differently than our predecessors have done with other livestock so that it's, that it's healthy. It's not something we have to undo and redo like we're discussing with a lot of the other production. So we use CO2 gas to, to harvest them, basically. There is a stress response. I can tell you that microwaving them for, to, to kill them, to cull them, that the evidence we've seen so far is there's almost no measurable stress response. So, so microwaving them to cull them is likely the most humane way to do it. Unfortunately, we don't think the public will understand the optics of that. So we, we have another learning curve to, to get to. Um, because it's, it, you know, we say we use ice and the, the, the CO2 gas from dry ice or direct CO2 gas, and we slowly put them to sleep, and then they eventually pass on, and then we rinse, roast, and grind them. Um, in different climates, we can absolutely have uh, outdoor access. You know, that's only because we're in Canada and we have to deal with the winters. But if we were around the equator, it's very possible we could do this in kind of more normalized or naturalized settings. But, um, but as far as, you know, you know, compared to other livestock, I think they're, they're in pretty good shape and, and, you know, serving a purpose, I guess. I mean, we have to eat. Can I respond to the ethical question of killing and culling? Thank you. Um, first of all, you may have noticed I've just put on this shawl and now I'm holding this club. Um, this is a Maasai uh, shawl for my colleagues in Kenya. And this is a, um, a club. You may notice there's a golf ball on the top of it. Um, I'm not quite sure how that golf ball got into the, um, their area in Kenya, but it did. But anyway, so we have a chapter in Kenya. And I traditionally now, when I give talks, I do wear the shawl and I do hold this club. And they have made me an honorary member of their um, village. And, and I'm proud and happy for that. And even today, they're working on a, a project uh, that we're involved with. But I just want to say that I um, participated in the culling of, uh, of a goat the last time I was there. And what sort of shocked me was they said, well, we know um, you're Jewish and your method of slaughter is to slice the throat. We believe ours is more humane. And is it okay with you if we kill the goat? the goat according to our method. And this was a profound experience for me, as you can imagine. And their method is simply to, um, is to suffocate it. And they just put their hand over its nose. And I know you think that sounds horrible. But um, within 15 seconds, it was passed out. And within a minute after that, we were drinking its blood, literally. That's how the Maasai do it. And that's how they're going to do it. And um, that's the reality on the ground. And the other reality on the ground is that we're helping them expand their herd and do holistic plan grazing. And we're working with the University of Nairobi to monitor the soil. So it's the whole, it's the whole thing. And when there's carbon markets, they'll be rewarded for it. So that's just, that's a day in, in my life in this, in this field. Thank you. Uh, this is a quick question for Jared. Um, full disclosure, I have not yet worked up the courage to crunch down a cricket, but I'm working on it. Um, anyway, but 
What I would like to know more um, is about the potential for insects as animal feed. I know Interra Feed Corporation is doing some really interesting stuff on the West Coast in terms of aquaculture, but um, you know, I don't know the uh, culinary preferences or nutritional requirements of most livestock, so I'd be curious to hear about you know, not only just substituting for conventional livestock production, but also lowering the impact of the existing systems as well. Thanks. No problem. So there's almost two completely different businesses within the world of edible insects for livestock feed. There's all the stuff that's going on with BSF or black soldier fly larva. They're, they're raising in the tens of millions of dollars. There's a project in South Africa that's massive, and they're using mainly pre- and post-consumer waste. Then there's the other side, and I think, like we discussed maybe yesterday, there's going to be feed formulators that are going to take some mealworms with some black soldier flies, with some crickets, and, and look at the chemistry that will be this feed formulation for fish or, or this for chicken. Um, I think the most exciting part, and it's a pity that Kate left, is that you know, a scientist from Italy called us and he said, what steroids and antibiotics and stuff are you using to grow like 35 million crickets in 20,000 square feet? And we said, none. And he said, well, that's impossible. You can't raise livestock without prophylactically or doing something, otherwise they're going to get sick and die. So long story short, it's the cockroach story. These insects have hyperbolic immune systems. And now we're beginning to understand why. And it's likely due to specific protein peptides that give them this enhanced immunity. So. The question is, if you feed that to other vertebrates, can that be transferred? And so far, the answer seems to be yes. A shrimp aquaculturist who added 10% of mealworm powder to the traditional shrimp meal doubled the survival rates of the hatchlings. So we're trying to reframe the framework that this isn't so much about an alternative to fish meal. This may be an alternative to steroids, prophylactic antibiotics, and things of that nature. And, you know, it, it, it's shocking that it's shocking that feeding insectivores insects is better for their health than feeding them, you know, something that's been manufactured. So it's a great question. We're, we're doing a lot of projects in dog food, particularly lab pets, formulating uh, treats is no problem because you don't have to make label claims. Dog food, especially in the U.S., is very highly regulated. So it's an exciting opportunity in that space, too, to take some of that diverted meat that's going toward the pet food markets. And, and bring it back to human if there's an opportunity for insects and pet food. Just a few more questions. Yeah, I think. we're going to try and go back to what Ryan was doing with the two people. So we'll do Kyle and then Goretti. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Kyle mortimer Pru. So I'm the chef on the committee or in the panel here. I have a question about labor. Um, as your production, Jared, has been scaling up very quickly, obviously being on the shelves of Loblaws, how is your labor cost expanded? And also, what about health concerns for workers compared to you know, the beef industry and pork industry and stuff like that, where there's obviously a higher risk associated with repetitive motion and working with knives and stuff like that? What sort of factors are impacting you? So on, on the cricket farming side, it's not as labor-intensive as one would imagine. On the processing side is where we need the innovation in technology to help us scale up and, and, and amortize that without necessarily using labor. Um, I think that answers the first question. So yeah, we're growing. We're up to 30 employees now. I mean, it's awesome. These are very passionate farmers. It's hot in those barns. Uh, you could not do the job just for the dollar. There, there's got to be something more to you to care to be there because it's tough work. Um, and then um, on the safety side, uh, most allergens or issues is in inhalation. 
So, so we are working with allergenists to, to understand that piece better from the consumption side and the farm worker side. So we encourage them to wear masks at, at this point. Um, it, does that answer your two questions? how we can grow um, you know, the insect market or any other sustainable protein, you have to consider the workers that are actually doing the work in terms of work-life balance, but safety as well. So yeah. how much of that is actually considered as we're looking at the dollars that are gonna be invested into these different industries, right? Yeah, it's a fair question, and I think to the earlier point, this is so new. We are so nascent. They're, they're, this is the beginning of the journey. Those are, I think, maybe are more sophisticated questions and easier answered in, answered in industries that have a long history, and you can look at data, and you can measure that data. But we're, we're trying to, like I said before, incorporate as much of that as we can along the way. So each, each move we make, each step we take, we're doing it as honestly and transparently as possible with everybody's best interest in mind. And that includes the work we're doing in Africa and, and empowering those people where, by the way, we are giving away our intellectual property um, to empower these communities to raise their own locally domestic insects to uh, change their lives. Great. Maybe we could gather two questions before we get panel response. So, Gritty? Uh, sure. Quick sneak question to Sarah about what should we do in light of all this? But I also have a question for Seth around carbon markets and carbon credits and the claims that are being made around the amount of soil carbon. Like it does depend on how degraded the soil is, how much carbon builds up. It can take a lot of years to build it up to the amount that we need uh, to get to sequester what we need to sequester. Like, you know, and depending on where you are, it could be 50 to 100 years. Uh, some places will be faster, but how do you deal with the uncertainty around carbon credits for these systems? Uh, because carbon estimations are, can be 100 to 200% off, and it takes 10 to 20 years to really see changes, and from one year to another, you can have fluctuations. Uh, hi, everybody. Thank you very much for this panel. My name is Laura Schein. I'm doing, I'd like to say, finishing a PhD in entomophagy and the arrival of entomophagy in Canada. And my question is actually very quick for Jared. It has to do with, do you have any numbers or ideas about repeat consumption since you've uh, made it into Loblaws? Because the novelty factor is obviously a very motivating one. Do you have any idea uh, how that translates into uh, actual adoption? Before Seth gets to his question, not yet, but after November 8th, when we have a meeting with them, we will. Uh, thanks for the uh, question, uh, what, what's to be done? So I, I, I want to be really clear, I'm not against business, I'm not against corporations, I'm not against uh, people setting up businesses. My concern is corporate concentration, which is fundamentally anti-capitalist, uh, actually, um, and, and the control of the market. Um, and so I think that the government has a role in regulating corporations, uh, especially around food. I think it's fundamental. And around innovation and businesses, 
there's a lot of evidence that actually government research, government-funded research, really has brought, driven a lot of important innovations, not only large corporations. And so uh, I'm absolutely not against the sort of changes that uh, McDonald's is making or Loblaws is doing as far as contributing to a more sustainable environment. But I am concerned about uh, just a few corporations uh, if we look at, like in the last couple of years, agri-food input corporations have gone from uh, control, you know, they control somewhere over 80% of the market. They've gone from six to four uh, globally. And so these have significant influences on what we as consumers can access. Uh, and I, you know, I totally agree about the Competition Bureau, uh, but they also approved with some modifications uh, the bear takeover of Monsanto in, in Canada. And that's a concern. It's a real concern around who controls access to seeds, um, the choices farmers have, those sorts of things. And so um, I, it's, I, I really want to underscore this. I'm not against business, but I am against one or two businesses or a handful of businesses controlling, um, you know, whether it's the consolidation in Canada of uh, supermarkets or despite the good work they do, um, that I think it's really important that we think carefully uh, about the role of the government and because they're the ones who actually can police, uh, police competition in a fair way. So did you want me to answer the question about the volatility of soil carbon? And, um, yeah, it's a highly volatile um, medium um, it can change quickly and that is a challenge and um, we've seen both. We've seen soil carbon degrade quickly and also improve quickly. So it, it is a, a, a palatable, uh, what's the word, um, malleable um, medium. And so the solution is that when you improve it, you have to continue the methodology. You know, you have to just, if you're grazing or doing cover crops, you need to just keep doing it to, to get it. So if there is a saturation point, well, the data will show it. Um, I couldn't imagine that happening for 10 or 20 years um, anyway, but some people say, you know, it will build carbon for 100 years or 1,000. I mean, who knows? But we just have to start doing it. As far as the market is concerned, this will be open source, transparent scheme. So there's not going to be any like monkey business going around. Um, the, the, the carbon in the soil will drive the efficacy of the market. You know, and so if the carbon goes down, then the value of the certificate goes down. Right? It's an immediate reflection. It's not based on a theoretical concept of, well, there's so much gold in Fort Knox. You know, the price of the certificate is directly mapped to a verified ton of carbon in the ground. And if you don't have a ton of carbon in the ground, the price of the certificate goes down. If you have more than a ton of carbon in the ground, the price of the certificate goes up. And people say, hey, what are they doing? Right? I want to do more of what they're doing and less of what those people are doing. So I think it's a fascinating concept 
I did not come to this from the investment side. Ryan put me on this panel, so you can blame, <laughs> you can blame him. Um, and I didn't get to graze. I mean, I was a traditional climate activist. If you had told me 15 years ago I'd be supporting grazing, I'd be like, what? I mean, I was a vegetarian and even the equivalent of a vegan. It was called macrobiotic back in the day, so I'm dating myself. But uh, this, is, this is where the science, as far as I'm concerned, this is where the science is leading us. Science is leading us to regenerative grazing, and the markets or the market mechanisms or whatever you want to call it is leading us to these type of carbon certificates. Great, thanks, Seth. I think we have time for two quick questions, do we? Yes, Marie Jose and Eric. Eric's been really patient. Okay. Oh gosh. Okay. So lots to say, but um, I guess I'm gonna enjoy the fact that we can have so great people here. So Susan, uh, sorry, Andrea, I miss your last name. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that you are here with us. And I want to, um, I was supposed to ask the question, but you answer very well, Sarah. I would love to hear your position on this whole issues of, we've been talking so much about all kinds of perspectives and data and science and research. Uh, one of my frustration, I guess, right now is the divestment, the de-investment, de whatever, of the government in research, in independent research, which I think is a real problem. And my fear when I'm listening to um, some of the government policies and governance going on within Canada about climate change, but also about the food policy that's coming around the corner. And I think we need to bring back the agri-food policies that we need. And the food movement has been really vocal, trying to diversify the type of voices that are emerging. And the agroecology element, I think we are missing the boat very highly if we do not engage with that debate. And I think that's from, I'm, I'm here at U of O, but I'm really speaking as a Canadian citizen that's very much uh, interested in the future of agriculture and health uh, and the economy. You know, I think all of this is coming together, but I'm just very curious to know what is it that's on the Canadian government agenda for like not only the high-tech end of agriculture, which is going to just concentrate even more the market and the enterprise. Thanks. Yeah, can I actually, can I build on this because it's very similar. I mean, I was, it's funny you asked this question. I was going, the last two days, lots of us had, um, many of us had very interesting proposals, suggestions, way forward, you know, and we can disagree on is this better than something else. But more or less, you know, we all recognize this and I'm just, and I don't want to, to target you, Andrea, because I think, I think it's all addressed to all of us as citizens. But I'm wondering what we could have done with $1.5 billion of a pipeline in, in uh, issues which actually address not only climate change, but also food, uh, the future of agriculture, uh, and so forth. So it's not a question, obviously. It's right? a provocation. But, <laughs> but I think but we have to look at the scale of what we're doing it currently, right? And I think we have to be more holistic and uh, systemic in, in our approach. And maybe as citizens, we haven't put enough pressure. So just, just before, <laughs> before I close, Andrea is, is not an elected uh, official. And we don't want to place all our concerns about the, the Canadian government on her shoulders. But uh, um, uh, unfortunately, we do have to end now. Uh, there are people who need to get to uh, 
train stations and so on and so forth. Thank you so much. Thank you to the audience for coming out. Thank you to the panelists for, for uh, seeing the, 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 the potential and the, um, the usefulness of a venue of an, of, of an event like this. Uh, and uh, thank you to um, sponsors who helped make this happen. Thank you to uh, Gibbs for doing a lot of the web and IT stuff and Shannon and some of the other volunteers. Um, I, I think I, I, uh, am, I just want to reiterate how deeply grateful I am to everyone here basically for helping to make this event uh, the event that it was. Very finally, this is just the first phase uh, of, of a project on uh, conceptualizing what the future of sustainable protein might be or a future of sustainable agri-food might be. Uh, the next phase uh, is going to get more in, in, in the way of um, policy-oriented takeaways that we might be able to, to, to draw from this discussion. Uh, and we'll have to think a little bit uh, creatively and innovatively about how to, to, to interpret some of the, the the differences of opinion that we've seen uh, and emphasize the points of, of, uh, of you know, consensus that we've seen as well. So join me in thanking yourselves <laughs> for a great day.